Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 137 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where we are very happy with the landslide election results. It was a landslide, the biggest landslide in history. Wait. (laughs) I am Karen Peterson, joined, as always, by my amazing co-host, Lauren Humphreys-Brooks. Lauren, how are you? I am pretty good all things considered like there's a lot of anxiety that is slowly shedding (laughs) you know it's just like gently dripping off (laughs) i it's it's kind of like when i mean it's not even kind of we have been it's when you go through this traumatic experience it takes a while to feel safe and comfortable again yeah yeah definitely definitely i keep on like looking around just like are we sure what but (laughs) But like, what, what if, what if something else happens? What if like something else could happen? Like, it's very, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ever going to relax. Yeah. <laughs> At least not until like the end of January, maybe. But, um, cause you know, we are also in, still, con- still in the middle of a global pandemic. So that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, uh, super fun. Like it's but... just all these great things happening. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I will say though, this week I watched less news than I have in a long time. It's yeah, been it's nice, nice not to feel like I had to be glued to CNN every yeah. day. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Definitely. But, actually, I actually started watching movies again. It's like, oh, I can watch some movies and that would be nice. nice. <laughs> isn't it nice? What's something you watched this week? Uh, actually, last night, I just watched um, The Last of Mrs. Cheney, which um, our, our friend Nanina had originally recommended. I had actually seen the original film, which is, a, I think, 1929. And it's a very, that film is very stagey. It's based on a stage play. So it's very, like, it's <laughs> very over-talky kind of thing. And, uh, but the, the remake, uh, which is a little bit later, it's 1938, that stars Joan Crawford, is much more sort of stylized and more kind of dynamic. Uh, and it's a fascinating film. Like, it is, it goes places that you don't really expect. The whole plot is just basically, um, Joan Crawford is, is a thief who's posing as this high society woman to kind of get into... Um, get into the household of this very rich English lord in order to steal uh, some pearls. And William Powell is her like partner in crime, basically. And it's much more about like her relationship with the people that she begins to like, and she begins to fall in love with one of them. And, and also about like class issues. It has, it, it goes to some really, really interesting places. I, I highly recommend it. It's on Criterion Channel right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's one of those very dense, like talky 1930s films, but it's, it's so well, it's very well directed. And Dorothy Arzner actually directed part of it. There are like three directors for this film. <laughs> um, but I feel like you could tell which parts Dorothy Arzner directed, to be honest, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know, but, um, yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah, that's cool. I, um, 
I've watched a couple of things this week that are not out yet. So it's like, I finally saw pieces of a woman. I saw I'm your woman, which are not the same movie. Not at all. <laughs> um, and last night I watched the white tiger and I think I'm allowed to talk about all of them. I don't think I'm under embargo for any of them, but, um, I will say of the three, the one I liked the most was I'm your woman, which is directed by Julia Hart and written and like she co-wrote it with uh jordan horowitz is that his name <laughs> her husband yes. um <laughs> i'm gonna say yes i was like i think i got that right oh my gosh it's terribly embarrassing if it's not right it's something like that anyway uh he's not that interesting to me but oh that's mean um but it's this it's set in the 70s rachel brosnahan is actually might be set right in 1970 rachel brosnahan plays this woman who is married to a guy who is a criminal like a career criminal thief type thing we don't really know exactly what all he's involved in but it's not good and um she can't have kids he comes home one day and he's like here honey i brought you this baby and this is just our baby now and she's just like wait whose kid is this and he's just like doesn't matter it's ours and then uh after a little bit he disappears and someone comes and gets her and is like you have to leave right now bring the kid and so then it goes into this kind of i don't want to give anything away but it goes into the kind of this um it, it feels a little bit it definitely is not even close to the same movie but in tone it feels a little bit like a blend of like widows and the kitchen and stuff like that she doesn't become like this big criminal like person herself but just the way that that tone is of this woman who's been wronged because of the stuff that her husband has done and now she has to do something about it and so it's it's um that one was a lot of fun i really enjoyed it and i i love the 70s as a design aesthetic so it was really fun seeing this very lived in world um with these like just great uh, like set design and stuff the costumes are awesome and then rachel brosnahan is so fun it's really good to see her in stuff that's i mean i love marvelous mrs Maisel, but it's fun to see her break out of that and do something that's so completely not midge Maisel too so I really enjoyed that. It's going to be, that's going to be on Amazon soon. I'm not, I can't remember when, but yeah, it's coming that sounds soon. That's really interesting. Yeah. So, um, that's, I mean, I've watched a bunch of other stuff too, but that was, I think, probably my favorite thing that I watched this week. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, one thing that I did want to address now that there's like movie news again in the world, um, I think we're going to actually start having some more regularly so this is fun um <laughs> but one thing i did want to talk about was the gotham awards came out this week on thursday and um there are some people that were not thrilled <laughs> about the best feature lineup uh now the gotham awards they're presented by the independent filmmaker project i had to get that right um and so it's a uh, it's a group people join and so similar to the um, uh, film independent, which does the spirit awards. Uh, but for their award nominations, they have juries. So they, they have basically nominating committees that will decide on 
the categories for acting, for uh, international film, all of that. And these are for movies that have a budget under $35 million. And um, this year, for the first time ever, the best feature lineup is all movies directed by women. And they were The Assistant, First Cow, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, Nomadland, and Relic. A bunch of people were pretty upset about this because it's very clearly <laughs> a statement. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> and they're like, oh, I can't believe Minari wasn't nominated. I can't believe um, Mank or whatever, you know, like all these other movies that definitely qualified are also very good films. Myself, personally, I was just like, good, because this is what it feels like every year when the lineup is all films directed by men mm-hmm. and we try to say no there were good movies directed by women too oh well but these are just better it's like it, see this can be done there are plenty of great movies directed by women and guess what guys not every great movie gets to be one of the you know top nominees that's just how yeah. it is yeah it, it's it's like <laughs> No, I, I saw that. And on the one hand, I'm like, oh, this is really great. Like, on the other hand, I'm, I'm a little worried that this is that one of the things that's going to happen this year is that there's a lot, there's going to be a lot of excuses. Because I haven't seen all of the films that, that were nominated, but I've seen some of them, and they're all great films. Uh, and but I'm a little concerned that, you know, people are gonna be like, well, you know, there were all these films that didn't come out this year, or there are all these films that people didn't go to see because, you know, the pandemic and everything. And so there's, there's going to be like this asterisk attached to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, yeah, it, it's really good to see that, you know, you can actually nominate a slate of great films, all of them directed by women. Yep. Uh, and, and that that's okay, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. What'll be really interesting is um, the Gotham Awards. They have an audience award too. So this is where their members, I mean, their members, once the nominations are out, they get to, I think they get to vote for everything. So they get to vote for the winners, but then there's the audience award, which is made up of um, all the films that are nominated for feature, documentary, international feature, and breakthrough director and so then they get to choose the audience award film out of that group and um so it's going to be interesting to see which direction they go that membership group goes um looking at this list of of contenders so i don't know it's gonna be really interesting um yeah i i mean this lineup this is a really great lineup and the thing is that all five of these films should be in the conversation for the oscars for best picture for other categories they should be and a couple of them are um but it's it's interesting how people immediately decided to get mad about what ifp is doing here instead of taking a minute to really reflect on what this says about the industry and what this says about the state of films this year and where we're headed so i don't know it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun to see this conversation play out and yeah i think the other thing people need to remember is that the gotham awards 
they're a precursor they help shine a light on stuff but this isn't like oh minari didn't get nominated for a gotham award so it's def it's definitely out of the running for us no it does not mean that at all yeah no i think that this this is among the first nominations for anything that is that have really come out this is the first yeah yeah in terms of big awards so yeah it's it's not a measure of First of all, awards are not a measure of a film's excellence, as we have right. obviously observed. Um, but they can actually shine lights on films that are great and that should be praised and that should be given attention. And, you know, I mean, I said when I saw Nomadland, I was like, you know what, if this was directed by a man, there would be immediate Oscar conversations happening right now. Like this mm-hmm. wouldn't, it wouldn't even be a question. And I kept on seeing these reviews of Nomadland that were like hedging and basically being like, well, it's good, but is it really award caliber good? It's just like, no, you're talking about this because it's a fucking woman who directed it. That's why you were being pissy about it. If this was like David Fincher or, you know, uh, Terrence Malick, you'd be like, oh, this is the greatest film ever made. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, you know, let's talk about the hypocrisy of this shit. And, uh, and the fact that as we observed, I think even last year, we, we could think of uh what five female directors who, all of whom should have just filled the oscar category yep and they didn't manage to nominate any of them right yeah exactly <sighs> it was so frustrating to see that happen and this is the thing like we see this happen every year there's always always at least three or four really good films directed by women that should be among those those same films directed by men and it's very rare that we get even one in two major categories you know yeah it's oh, so frustrating like i remember uh, not that long ago i was talking to someone about um you know because everyone well not everyone but it's weird how many people decide to tell me the fun fact about how many women have been nominated for directing Oscars. I'm like, why do you think I don't know that off the top of my head and can name them all and their movies? But <laughs> like, geez. But um, but yeah, I was talking to someone about how Lena Vertmuller was the first woman to be di- nominated for directing. And then I said, but when was the first movie directed by a woman nominated for best picture like what was it and when did it happen and people have no idea and they just assume oh it was around the same time it's like no it didn't happen until 10 years later it was in the 80s you know like this is this is ridiculous and it's like there's been so many movies that have been worthy of it and have deserved to be right there and it's like maybe we're finally getting to a point where women are going to be taken just as seriously as men i hope i don't know i feel like this is going to be another one of those cases where we'll get several in this year and then there will be a backlash next year yeah yeah there's there's been this constant attitude of like that and this is the other thing that i guess worries me a little bit about the the gotham awards is that there's going to be this attitude of you know well it's it's tokenism you know or it's um you know they're just pandering to to you know i don't know wokeness or sjw's Mm. or something like that um and and that yeah and then that eventually there's going to be this backlash against against the films against the directors against you know women generally of being like well they're not really serious like this is just this is just you know token feminism 
um which is bullshit you know and (laughs) honestly the thing that drives me more crazy is the condescension Mm -hmm. because you get these dudes who who are like who definitely don't consider themselves sexist um but say things like well i just think it should be about the quality of the film not about like who the director is or anything like that and of course inevitably it's always like well the quality of the film means that this david fincher film gets nominated but not you know the chloe zhao film and it's like "Mm, that's really interesting that's interesting i mean i i've made certain men very mad by pointing out just like it's interesting that all of the films that you don't like happen to be directed by women (laughs) Oh yeah. And they think that's just a coincidence. They do not see it. I've had this conversation with men too. And it's, it's like, how, how, how are you so blind? How do you not understand that there is a correlation here? And oh yeah. And, and I think that some of it is also about name recognition. So when we see, you know, a David Fincher film, like we recognize that name almost immediately. He's become mm-hmm. this very well-known director, right? Same thing with like, Martin Scorsese or, or um, Quentin Tarantino, any of those guys. So we automatically make all these assumptions about the quality of the film. When you see, you know, Chloe Zhao uh, as, as, as the director or Mariel Heller, there doesn't seem to be the same kind of assumptions being made. And part of that is because they've been, they're primarily independent filmmakers or they haven't gotten tons of awards. So they are not getting the same kind of focus that mm-hmm. the male directors have. And so it's, it becomes this you know, self-fulfilling prophecy where because I don't recognize their name or because I can only name you know, one other of their films, I'm like, well, then probably they're not that good. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's an attitude that gets going as well. That's changing a lot. Like I think that particularly someone like Chloe Zhao who has received so much praise for her films or uh, Kelly Reichardt, mm-hmm. uh, that, that that's shifting a bit. Ava DuVernay is another one, um, but th- we still have that same kind of attitude. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that uh, it's interesting still, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, but it's it's funny how, you know, when men talk about female directors that they like they always go to Catherine Bigelow it's like yeah of course you like her because she makes her movies that don't look like movies directed by women and at least to you it's not as easily recognizable and it's you know it's very frustrating that I, I it'd be really interesting if we could just scrub the director's names off of movies when people see them and they could just watch it and feel what they feel and then afterwards be like by the way guess who directed that it was kitty green you know and (laughs) it'd be really interesting to see how different reactions were well there are definitely some films that i've seen that i didn't know that the director was female or something like i wayne's world it took me ages until i realized that you know and it was one of my favorite movies when i was a kid mm-hmm. um and and i didn't realize until very late that it was directed by a woman yeah uh and and so yeah like like there's that like oh so it, and there's i don't think that i would have assumed one way or the other i kind of assumed it was directed by a man because it seems like a very male male humor i guess but there's no reason to assume that it was directed by a man it just was kind of like oh okay you know whatever Mm -hmm. uh but i so i think that that happens a little bit sometimes with older films particularly when you don't realize that this has actually been directed by by a woman or or you know in the case of some uh hollywood films written by a woman uh or produced by a woman right yeah 
anyway women make awesome movies as the gotham awards decided to show us and prove so there we go they do <laughs> um yeah see all of these they're all really really good <laughs> i was very happy to see the love for relic that made me just so thrilled um okay so um hey lauren guess what it is november it's it is november and that means it's November. <laughs> <laughs> as everyone on twitter likes to remind us so um <laughs> Now, last week we were just so over the moon with election results that we just kind of went, whatever, we'll talk about that later. So it's later, and this week we're here talking about the very place that film noir got its name, Mm -hmm. the French, France. And so that's what we're talking about this week, is French film noir. So, where should we start? (laughs) (laughs) uh i mean we can start with the fact french film noir (laughs) i i think that we can start with the fact that yes this was actually a a a term that was not coined in hollywood although it was coined about hollywood films or a particular slice of hollywood films um and i i believe it was originally coined in like 1955 by a couple of french critics who referred to these particular kinds of films um that are like basically i i mean in the 1940s and 50s they were labeled crime movies, gangster films, um, but they definitely have a certain post-war malaise that, that kind of overhangs all of them. You know, noir is, uh, I was trying to talk about noir with my parents and my mom's like, so it's more like a, a style or a sensation than it is a, a genre. It's like, yeah, that's pretty much it. It's, it's a look. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a, and subject matters as well, but even like, oh, there's some crime films from the same period that are not that I wouldn't necessarily call noir films um but so the French actually did coin this term they applied it to a particular group of American films primarily in the 1940s and 50s and then within a very short span of time uh the French began making their own kind of versions of noir or noir influenced films yeah yeah pretty much so um Let's see. We had a couple of good questions and we wanted to start there. Um, The first one is, I actually really enjoyed this question um, from at Oxford Splice. Why do French, uh, sorry, why do male French character actors just look like they have lived, like really, really lived? And I love that question. Um, when, and I think we'll talk about some specific actors in a bit, but um, I think that one of the things you just mentioned, Lauren, I mean, this is post-war France, that you know these actors have lived through their country being occupied twice. It, they had lived. And uh, I think that that comes through, not just the actors, but I think that comes through the characters. These are characters then, like subsequently, who have also lived lives and it's been rough you know and i think it also just adds to the atmosphere of these you know hard-boiled like these detectives these criminals that have just been through it i don't know if that makes sense but yeah no absolutely i and i think that there are a number of um french noir films that deal with criminals it's it's kind of the the stereotype of the one last job sort of thing yeah 
um, that, so that deal with criminals that are recently out of prison, that have been in prison for, you know, 10 years or 15 years, uh, and that get out and then, you know, are basically like, if I can just do one more thing and then I can have money so that I can retire and, you know, I don't have to do this anymore. Uh, so there's a lot of those themes that are running through that. And as a result, yeah, you do get these actors that have very, they've, I, I guess the only way to describe it is they have very distinctive faces. Mm-hmm. Like you look at them and you're like, yeah, these guys, like you say, just, they've been through the French resistance. They've been through World War II. They've been through prison, et cetera. And, uh, and the, the casting is very much for these lived in faces that kind of show their experience, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so the second part of the question is, how is it that those in the French New Wave worshipped Hitchcock but looked down on Henri-Georges Clouseau, sorry, I'm going to pronounce every French name very Frenchly, um, for being too commercial. Uh, you want me to answer that? You, you want to start? I'm thinking about my answer, but why don't you go <laughs> ahead and start, and then I will wisely uh, add my comments. <laughs> I, I think, so one of the reasons that I think that um, that Clouseau gets kind of pushed to the side. I think that there's a distance between, like a cultural distance between uh, Clouseau and Hitchcock. And by that, I mean that the French view Hitchcock as being this kind of, this perfect auteur. And part of it is because many of the French New Wave critics either grew up or came of age watching Hitchcock films versus Clouseau, who is more closely their contemporary. And so they're sort of looking at Clouseau and being like, oh, well, that's just like a French copy of Hitchcock or something like that, even though he isn't. And if you watch his films, you know that he isn't. Um, and that that, that sort of, I, I, yeah, like I said, the, the, there's a certain kind of cultural dif- distance between the French, uh, the French critics and Hitchcock versus the French critics and someone who's making Hitchcock-like films in their own country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's I my think, opinion. Yeah, no, I think that that's, really true and I think part of it is um similar to what we were just talking about where it's like just because something comes from one director you're are you're already going to have certain expectations about it and feelings about it and you're you know like just like with oh David Fincher made this movie it's gonna be great you know and so I think that that was part of it too it's like oh Hitchcock made this so I'm gonna love that Clouseau eh, that guy whatever even if they you know you could put either of their names on the other's movie and tell people like oh Hitchcock directed this Clouseau directed that one and they would probably I think in some cases still react like then they would say oh well the Hitchcock film is better you know it's kind of this weird psychological thing yeah I think yeah so but i don't think that is entirely the case i just think that that's a you know part of it but yeah i think that because i mean some of the some of the films that clouseau did versus the ones that hitchcock did like hitchcock's do have often a more polished feel to them yeah, partially because he was making films uh, in Hollywood, like, and, uh-huh. and a lot of the films that the French critics worshipped were not, you know, maybe a little bit some of his early British stuff, but but for the most part, they were his Hollywood films. They were yeah. everything from, you know, Notorious through Vertigo or Psycho. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that those films were the ones that um, that they kind of elevated as being like, oh, he's this great auteur. And so, yeah, they look very polished. They're very pretty. They're very pretty people, pretty actors, et cetera. And, you know, I'm a huge Hitchcock fan. I'm not saying that, Hitchcock, <laughs> that those films aren't great, right? But it, there is there is more of a polish to them and there is more of like a Hollywood kind of, this is the way that films are supposed to look, I guess. Mm-hmm. Whereas you've got Clouseau who, I mean, one of his films, uh, Le Corbeau is being made during uh, or just prior to the Nazi occupation. Right. Um, you've got, so they're much grittier, they're darker. There's, um, there's also some question, I think in a number of French critics' minds, uh, even though they might not voice it directly about where Clouseau actually fell in terms of was he a collaborator? Was he sort of giving excuses for the Nazi occupation in something like Corbeau, um, which in turn then kind of colored their reaction to the rest of his films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And once you have that feeling towards someone, it's really hard to separate them you know, from that yeah yeah so i yeah i love that question i think that was a great question and i hope that we helped a little lauren definitely more than me um i mean i think in in some ways at the end of the day like why you know why do we think that certain directors are better than others you know why do we necessarily embrace one director but not the other one and i think some of it is just familiarity and and some of it is what we decide are supposed to be the aesthetics of good films. And Mm -hmm. if those films do not particularly match the aesthetics that we want, you know, then we decide, oh, they're not good. Wait, Lauren, are you suggesting that art is subjective? No, not at all. It's completely objective. (laughs) And, and my opinion about art is the objective one. Um, Everybody else's are just wrong. So. yeah exactly just listen i am to correct me. i am correct you're you're not correct and yes. that's just how it is sorry not really sorry because why should i apologize for the truth <laughs> um yeah but those those are both great questions thank you and then we also and this is gonna i think lead us into um the next part of our discussion we also got a couple of great questions from will william bibiani at william bibiani um Godard is the most overrated director, but I wouldn't mind hearing a great podcast explain why for a while. Um, well, I am not the person to explain why, but thank you. Um, I mean, I can say, and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, I can say I've only seen a couple of his movies because I think of him as just this like pompous French guy who is very obsessed with himself and thinks that everything he does is great. And I'm still really pissed at him for standing up Agnes Varda in Faces Places. So uh, I have not forgiven him for that. (laughs) And that's why I think he's overrated. (laughs) Lauren, what do you say? Uh, Yeah, I I have a hate-hate relationship with Godard. it's, I, I think that, and, and just, just to preface this with saying, not all of Godard's films are would be considered noir in any sense. Some of his films definitely use noir as a reference point and particularly Breathless, um, Alphaville and Band of Outsiders are all very noir tinged films and they're intentionally so. Like Breathless is a riff on film noir explicitly. Um, I, my 
problem with Godard is I think a combination of the quality of his actual films and the, re the critical reaction to them. Yeah. Um, and the quality of the films, they're just not very good films a lot of the time. And by, <laughs> by that, I mean, they're not interesting. Like they're not interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. um, they are boring in places like Alphaville. I know it was, is one of those that a lot of people really like. I don't like Alphaville because I find it boring. Nothing really happens. Um, I, I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, this is just, this is just Godard trying to riff on film noir, but not doing anything really interesting with it. I feel like, because I remember, you know, seeing stuff when I was younger, like in high school and, and early college where, you know, you're watching something and like, like a movie or a TV show and the super cinephile character is like watching this French film and everyone else is just like, I don't get this movie. I feel like every time that character is watching a good art film. <laughs> like, <laughs> like well, it's yeah, seems, it's, yeah. It's, it's true. I find his films generally, I find his films very cold. Mm -hmm. So they might be aesthetically pleasing. You might look at a frame from them and be like, oh, that's really pretty, yeah. right? But there's nothing, there's no emotional connection to the characters. And, and a lot of the time you're not supposed to have emotional connection to the characters. They are supposed to be cold. Right. Um, so it's not even that he's failing in his project. He's doing exactly what he intends to do. I just don't like it. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that was definitely my experience with Breathless. Breathless, I remember seeing it and it being like, it's, it's so often, you know, listed as one of the greatest films of all time. And I like Jean-Paul Delmondo. I like Gene Seberg. And I saw that movie and I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from this. I don't know, <laughs> like, why, I don't know why I care. Yes, they're, they're, they're boring people. Like, you know, they're, yeah you know he's he wants to be Humphrey Bogart uh okay great like you know this is expressive of the ennui of the French middle classes or something or the French working classes it's like I don't care I I don't like there's nothing that is connecting me to this film particularly yeah. um so yeah the, and then the other side of it is is I think the critical reaction to to them as you said the um the cinephile sort of elevation of Godard which is very much something that Godard did to himself too he was just like I am the greatest <laughs> filmmaker of all time did you know that and so cinephiles are like ah did you know that Godard is the greatest filmmaker of all time um but I do think that Godard has this this element for a lot of, of critics and a lot of cinephiles of being uh, you know, he's one of us, right? He loves movies. He loves movies more than anything. And all of his films are these deep pastiches of, you know, movies and how wonderful movies are. And it's like, yeah, but I mean, let's like actually look at the quality of the films. And I, you know, maybe we don't really want cinephiles just making movies. Maybe we want people who know how to make movies making movies. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that there is actually a difference between people who just love movies and people who should be directors. Right. Yeah. Uh, I can think of a couple of American examples too. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So I, I think that again, you know, my, my opinion is the correct one, obviously. Uh, In this but, case, yes. But yeah, but uh, Godard's, Godard's films are generally overrated. I think they're very cold. Yeah. And I, I don't think 
that they they're not as interesting as they need to be in order to justify their existence mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> that might be kind of yeah <laughs> they feel kind of what's that that might be kind of harsh <laughs> <laughs> i don't think that it's unfair though <laughs> i think that you're i i would agree with you based on like i said i've only seen a couple but it's because of that exact thing like they his style has just turned me off and i don't look at you know a movie like breathless and go oh man i have this burning desire to watch this movie right now like no not really i'd much rather watch you know cluzo (laughs) but yeah 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 and and uh you know i think that the only godard film that i've seen multiple times is a band of outsiders which i do actually like but again the coolness of that film is can be very off-putting it's after a while you just go like okay get on with it you know get on with whatever the plot is supposed to be please get on with it because just watching these people dance or drive around Paris I you know why do I care I think that that's one of the things that it comes down to why do I care and half the time I don't I'm kind of watching this because it's supposed to be good Mm -hmm. yeah because people said this is a good movie so it's like oh okay well I guess I have to (laughs) yeah it's it he's one of those that is frequently discussed and so there's this feeling of like I have to watch his stuff I have to be familiar with his work but I don't feel any sense of connection to anything that he has made that I've seen so far and I don't imagine that that would change I don't feel like there's a Godard film out there that's like the one for me that I just haven't found yet yeah yeah I I agree with that so um the other part of the question from William Bibiani was uh did film noir become artificially mannered as soon as french critics codified the genre that is to say when filmmakers began to intentionally make noirs did the genre evolve from a natural extension of cynicism into a self-aware style exercised exercise even when it's earnest and i think to talk about this i think we first need to talk about um kind of a little brief look at some of the history of kind of how this um style emerged um in french film and and kind of where it came from and some of the characteristics of it a little bit more than what we were already talking about so like um a lot of the especially the earlier ones are um similar in mood to some of the literature that was coming out like especially the late 18th century early 19th century no sorry late 19th century early 20th century i'm getting my centuries mixed up <laughs> um i was gonna say that's you're going really far back from noir <laughs> no, wow no, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah but like 1880s to like yeah. 1920s 30s um yeah my <laughs> my centuries are all out of whack right now but i don't even know when i am but <laughs> um but yeah, so I think that if you look at, at, there's this grittiness to the world that the characters are living in. There's this, mm-hmm. this, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, but just sort of this, this mood, this feeling, there's, there's always this feeling, even if it's not intentional, there's, there's often this feeling of like, something's about to happen, like major world event type thing it's always kind of part of these 
these films where it's just kind of yeah. this this mood this kind of this cloud hanging over it i think is what i'm trying to say um and so i don't know so let's talk about what were some of the earliest films when they just at to his question um that just kind of emerged and then at what point did it start to be that they were intentionally making them and what was the difference and was there a difference well i think that some of it is about what we want to label noir and what we don't so um so one of the one of the earlier films would be something like pepe the moco which is uh, i think 1930s it's a jean gabin film um, which is, it, you know, it's this criminal who basically lives in, um, he lives in the Casbah the and he can't leave because if he leaves, he's going to be arrested, right? So that's the basic idea. And then, of course, complications arise and, and he eventually, uh, uh, there, and he falls in love and it's like, oh, I want to leave the Casbah and, you know, but he, he knows that if he does, he's going to die, you know, all of this stuff. So there's this, this fatalism that is kind of underlying a lot of it, that he sort of knows that he's not going to be able to live like this forever. Um, and there's a hope that he'll be able to escape, but also this knowledge that he seems to have, even if other characters don't, that he's never going to be able to escape. Um, but that's a very, that's not a riff on noir. That is its own form of noir, mm-hmm. uh, basically. And so you get films like that, you get much later, you get something like Rafifi, which is a, a 1955 film and is actually directed by an American filmmaker with a French name, <laughs> um, who Jules de uh, Sand, who had to leave America because of the blacklist. And so he goes to he goes to Europe and he goes to France and he eventually makes Rafifi, which then gets recognized at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, and Rafifi kind of becomes sort of ground zero almost for uh, a lot of, of French noir of that period. And again, Rafifi is a serious film. It's not self-consciously riffing on anything um, that you know French critics have identified or that is coming out of America. It's, it's a French heist movie. And it's using a lot of the chiaroscuro, a lot of the, um, you know, the kind of, the, like I say, the fatalism, the sort of, the, this, the, you know, we're gonna get a gang together. And for some of them, it's, it's the last, it's the last thing that I have to do. You know, it's the last thing that I will do and then I can retire. <laughs> uh, and of course, you know, as soon as anyone in a movie says, they're just like, oh, you're gonna die. <laughs> Yeah. Or it's all going to go south, you know, and, and Rafifi has a lot of reference points to American films around the same period, to films like The Asphalt Jungle or The Killers or um, uh, there's another one that I just thought of, uh, Stan- The Killing, the Stanley Kubrick film, which is a bit later, I think. Mm-hmm. But so it's, it's within a, a tradition that is already getting pretty well established in, in America and then is getting established in France. Um, and then, yeah, at a certain point, the films begin to, to change, I guess. So they become more, more and more self-conscious of what they're doing. Um, although I'm, th- I'm, go on. Yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say, when do you think that is really? Cause I, I don't know. I think that's actually some of it, you know, we were just talking about Godard. Some of it is, is what Godard is doing. Um, so both Breathless, Breathless Alpha Villain, and Band of Outsiders are self-consciously referencing noirs. They're pastiches. Mm-hmm. And they're pastiches that are supposed to be doing something different, but it, it does become almost the self-reflexive 
not satire, um, but, but yeah, it's more pest- intentional pastiche yeah i think that that's that's the closest that i can come so it starts taking maybe the elements of the stories less seriously Mm -hmm. um so it isn't treating and and if you watch breathless or band of outsiders it really is about a, a bunch of bored kids who are sort of playing at being these figures mm-hmm um, versus films like Rafifi or, uh, you know, um, uh, Pablo Flambeur or um, what was the other one that I was thinking of? There's a uh, Georges Simonin adaptation, I think uh, The Head of a Man, which is earlier. Um, but those, those films are very like intentionally serious. They're not making fun of the genre at all. Right. Uh, whereas with Breathless and, and Band of Outsiders and then something like Truffaut Shoot the Piano Player, they're very self-consciously constructing these, these images as these, these recognizable noir images. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Like, what was it? Was, was it just because they liked the style or was there something they were trying to say with that style? Uh, I don't know. I think that some of it is, <laughs> is honestly a change in generation. Yeah. So a lot of the or a lot of the noirs that we talk about in America, these are directly post-war. So they're the night they're the late forties and the and the early to mid fifties. Mm-hmm. And then even in America, things begin changing, and eventually by the sixties and seventies, we're pushing into what will eventually be referred to as neo-noir. Right. But the those films of the forties and fifties are not they're not self-conscious because they, they don't know that they're doing a style. Yeah. <laughs> they don't know that they're going to be labeled film noir in like 1955. They're just, you know, using these elements of crime movies, of gangster films, of like you're saying, of, of like uh, early 20th century literature, you know, adaptations of novels by Dashiell Hammett and, um, and Raymond Chandler, James F. Kane. Even some Victor Hugo. Yeah, exactly. And so, so you're getting, and then you, and then essentially what you're getting is my favorite uh, style, German expressionism, <laughs> um, is rather than, you know, we talked about it in application to horror, rather than applying it to horror where, you know, it, it gets applied to these noir films. So I think that some of it is just this change of generation that you've got this post-war generation who's been through World War II has, and were of age during World War II. That's the other thing. Right, they yeah. are the people that went to war. Yeah. Uh, and, and then experienced it as adults. Mm-hmm. And then you get these stories about particularly men coming back from that war and basically not having a place and not knowing what to do. And so you get more and more of these stories about criminality and uh, deciding that, you know, in order to achieve kind of the American dream, we're going to become criminals. Um, that, I, you know, we don't have any other place. There's nothing else that we can become. Yeah. And that's something that's happening in America. And then you get a shift in generation, both in America and in France, where people, um, and particularly people like Godard Truffaut, are the ones who are not entirely brought up on these films, but they have been experiencing these films a lot as younger people. And decide that they're going to kind of use the aesthetics of the films and the concerns of the films and sort of go in a different direction with them. I think it's notable that someone like um, Jean-Pierre Melville, who was, I believe, a member of the French resistance, 
made a number of what we would term French noir films, uh, all of which are deathly serious. I mean, these are not riffs. These are not satires. These are not, you know, conversations about noir as a genre. They are about like the darkness and the suffering and the existential <laughs> angst of mm-hmm. a post-war generation. And it's, you know, and it, including a film called Arm- Army of Shadows, which is directly about um, uh, the French resistance. And it's, it's not a noir film, but it has a lot of noir elements to it. Uh, and, and I think that that's, that's an important thing to note that there are different director generations and the kinds of films that they're making differ. It's, it's interesting. And I know we've talked about this a little bit before when we were talking about the history of film and, and things, but um, I think that part of what's going on in this era is sort of a, uh, the French reclaiming film. And because, I mean, like we talked about the very earliest when film was starting to emerge as something that people could could do that the moving pictures were a medium that was starting to be uh used a lot of those early roots were happening in france and um the film industry was was burgeoning in separate places all at the same time but but france definitely had its own um sort of it was it was one of the birthplaces of film and so as they are developing it and things then of course world war one happens that um caused a lot of things to be shut down it caused it was it caused a lot of destruction um a lot of things were destroyed um which is what destruction means sorry um but uh but yeah so it it kind of paused the forward momentum meanwhile the Americans are really uh, emerging and building this huge um, uh, world, I guess, this industry, and that's growing and growing, and the French come back into it, they go back in and out of it, and so I think by the end of World War II, and not that it wasn't happening before and during the war, but I think, I think the French new wave and one of the things that came from that was this noir uh these noir films but i think that that was partly the french trying to reclaim their own style and yeah they adapted a lot of the things a lot of the techniques and and ideas that were being used in american films but they were actively trying to make it their own again and i think that that's a big part of what you're seeing especially in films in the 40s and 50s and into the 60s yeah, and, and I think that we have to remember that post-war, so Fran- France, France post-war is essentially, it, it is a formerly occupied country. Yeah. Now it's sort of being occupied again in a certain sense by American industry and American um, uh, products. Mm-hmm. And one of the American products that was, that was sent to France, basically, uh, and is one of the reasons why you have these new wave critics who are so interested in American film, is they just the Americans just dumped a whole bunch of films on the French public and, and said like, here are all of our movies. (laughs) Yeah. You know, because there really wasn't a French film industry to speak of. There was a French film industry that had basically been run um, in various forms by the Germans and by, you know, the, the ruling French government of the time. But 
you've got this whole transformation that's going on in France and the Americans are just like, all right, we're going to sell you our culture basically. And so that, so one of the part of that was gangster films and what eventually become labeled noir films that the Americans are just funneling all of these movies into French movie theaters. And so there you've got these, these French children and teenagers and, and adults who the first films that they're seeing for like in the 1940s, right? Outside of an occupied territory are these American movies. And so a lot of that goes into then the development of the French film industry as it begins to change and as, as it becomes uh, its own thing. And that's, that's part of where these rifts come from, you know? Uh, I, I think that it's interesting, the other part of the question um, uh, into like this, this whole idea of, a, of it being a self-aware exercise, right? That, that these riffs on noir become so self-aware that they stop being noir. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's interesting because there is, noir has this underpinning of cynicism, right? That things aren't going to work out. Right. right. That even even the people with the best intentions who are just trying to get along, you know, it's just going to go from bad to worse and you're going to wind up dead or in prison by the end of it. Um, or if you're not dead or in prison, you are you are like so devastated by all of the events of the story that you're never going to be able to dig yourself out from it. Like that's and that's kind of what happens in a lot of noirs, not all of them, but some of them. Mm-hmm. And where. I think it's interesting that in some of these noirs, there's almost this, some of these French noirs, there's almost this, this feeling that of course this is going to happen, right? right. So not even, the, I'm not even resisting the fact of you know how this is all going to end. So I'm gonna go back and do one more job, but I know at the end of that job, I'm going to die, <laughs> but I'm still going to do it. So it is this very French sort of existential fatalism Um, even pushing into nihilism that I'm going to do it because I have to do it because that is my fate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, It's very, very Greek almost. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's very true. So let's talk about some of our favorite films in this subset. Um, What's one of yours? Uh, I think one of mine is, is actually one of the earliest ones, which is Elevator to the Gallows. Uh, by by Louis Malle which you know again it has all of those elements of fatalism and I love that movie because I'm sitting there going like oh I really hope that everything works out and I'm like this is not gonna work out you know that it's not gonna work bad to worse how is Uh, this possibly gonna have a happy ending no exactly exactly and uh but I think that that's one of the qualities of the film and and the best films from this genre really do make you root for people that you know are doomed (laughs) like you're just like I want things to be okay for them you're like I know it's not going to be okay but that's I want it to be okay right well and then Uh, there are moments where you think well this might work out yeah maybe maybe (laughs) no never oh he got out of the elevator undetected like it'll be okay no no it won't Uh, yeah, so I, I just love that one. It's such a, it's, it's a very well-constructed film and, you know, it builds the tension so well. You know, we were talking about Hitchcock and Clouseau. They're, they're two of the ones that do a really good job at creating suspense and, and Mal in this film just, he, he creates that suspense and understanding of what's happening. Like he kind of plunges you right into it at the beginning. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not entirely clear what is going on or why the, you know, why this guy is in an elevator. And then you figure out like actually what's happening and you get more and more of the story. It's like, oh Jesus, you know, like yeah. this, this is so, it's so tense and so dangerous. And, and like I said, at the same time, you kind of know that it's fated to fail at some level, but how is it going to fail? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and then you've got this woman who, I mean, she's not, she's not a good person. She's not doing the right thing, but you just, you just want it to work out for her because clearly her husband's a bad dude. <laughs> it's not like she's doing things necessarily for the wrong reason, <laughs> but maybe a little bit. But I mean, isn't that true in so many of these noirs? It's like double indemnity yeah. or the postman, uh, the postman always rings twice. Yeah, like, you don't, I mean, a lot of the time the husband's like, well, he's not great, but he's not bad. Sometimes he's downright abusive and you're like, yeah, fucking murder the guy. <laughs> yep. um, but, but still, it's just like, no, we can't have that. We can't have people, can't go around killing off husbands here. It's not all right. <laughs> Even if they're bad. I Even guess. if they're bad. <laughs> and that's why we have neo-noir, because then we can kill off husbands <laughs> and get away with it. Yes. <laughs> um, one of my favorites, and we've we, I've talked about this movie a bunch. It's funny because I didn't really consider it as a noir film until I saw it on your list. And I was like, huh, yeah, I guess I can talk about it then. And then I saw it on a bunch of other lists too. And I was like, oh, what was I thinking? That is, speaking of Clouseau, Diabolique. I <laughs> love Diabolique. <laughs> it's one of my favorite films of all time. It's I, a great film. Yeah. I first saw it in high school in my French class. And I remember my teacher sitting at the back of the classroom while we're all watching this movie. And I, like you could just afterwards, I realized she had just been waiting for our reaction for like the big moment at the end. And, like yeah. I know that she just showed that every year because it just made her so happy to see students react to it. So <laughs> it's just really, um, I would love to see a very, very good restoration of it because it's um the the i mean i have the criterion but it's still kind of like a little bit muddy and dark in places so there are times where it's like oh i wish this picture were crisper but i think the use of of light and shadows in that is very effective the building of tension is so good and the way that you have these two women working together for this common goal which is again a man who really deserves to die um <laughs> but um but watching the way that that one uses that connection to the other woman um mm -hmm. is it's masterful the way that that those two work together and against each other and yeah i love that movie so much yeah it's it's actually in some ways it's an interesting use of the the concept of the femme fatale Mm -hmm. um that they are both technically femme fatales but they also aren't you know it, it's i yeah i put that on there and then i was like is this a noir well yeah it is a noir in a lot of ways i would also kind of consider it to be a horror film yeah um because of the use of the uncanny and uh and and like yeah it's it's like in the psycho sort of realm mm -hmm. um but it's a fascinating film and just the use of light and shadow in that movie 
uh, is is so good. And I, re I remember, I know the scene that you're talking about and <laughs> I kind of knew it was coming because I had heard about it, but oh, then it see, happened I and I was, <laughs> I was totally and then it happened. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Um, because well that's the other thing because it, it keeps he's very good at keeping things obscure like what yeah. is actually happening here mm -hmm. um, and he's keeping a lot back from the viewer and does a really good job with it uh, without you know it seeming like the camera is lying or anything like that no he's telling the story but he's telling it in a particular way and it works really really well yeah. um, but yeah and it, it's it's so well set up for it too like it, yeah. they they establish all of the elements that you need and then <laughs> like and then they're just like and here we go you know and it just takes this left turn as like, oh my god this wasn't what I thought it was going to be at all <laughs> yeah well and then it has like this double punchline at the yeah. end where you're just like holy crap this is amazing yeah I guess for people who don't know what it is um first of all shame on you second of all it's basically it's these two women they're well it's this there's this boarding school that is not doing well um they don't have a lot of money the kids are eating like mush basically because the headmaster is this really terrible abusive guy and his wife is the one she had inherited money and that was how they were able to buy the school and she's a teacher there but he's a really terrible person and he's got a mistress who's also one of the teachers and the wife and the mistress decide you know what we need to be done with this guy and they conspire to kill him and then they hide his body and then the body disappears <laughs> dun, dun, dun. and um yeah oh so good i love that movie what's another one uh, well, one of the one of the others that I always go to, and part part of this is because a certain pe person who claims not to be a film critic yet wrote a book about film, uh, said like this is a boring movie and I don't like it. It's like, well, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> is Rafifi? I, um, I love Rafifi. It has the tensest heist scene I think ever put on film. And I say that as someone who loves heist movies. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what is so good about it is that it is almost entirely silent, mm -hmm. that section of the film. Like, and and it's, it's silent for a reason. They're pulling off a heist and if they talk too much or if they make too much noise, they're gonna get caught. Right. But it is so well done and it is a great example, again, of that creation of tension and suspense and that feeling of like something is gonna go wrong but you don't know what and you don't know how and and maybe they will get away with it maybe it will work you know mm -hmm. and it's just so well done and i think the the scene itself lasts for a good like 15 or 20 minutes it's a very it's a very long sequence yeah um and you realize by the end of it that you've been like holding your breath <laughs> because it's so intense and and i think that that you know again when film film has such a wonderful capacity to engage us emotionally. And when you have that kind of a reaction to a film where you're just on the edge of your seat, watching something that is totally, that it has almost no dialogue, almost no sound accompanying mm -hmm. it. It is so good. And you become, the, the film is very good at making you aware of every little tiny sound that happens. Yeah. Like if someone drops something, you can feel it. Mm -hmm. uh and and it's it's just such an effective film and it's it's a great film otherwise as well like the whole structure around it is really good but that particular sequence is so intense and so exciting and it does make me go like okay who the fuck 
watches this movie did you actually watch the whole movie did you just turn it off like 15 minutes in because it's in black and white and it's a language you don't speak yeah um you know because who watches that movie and and particularly sees that sequence and goes like oh this is boring right yeah exactly exactly (laughs) well and that that scene that you're talking about is one where it's like i don't think that we pay enough attention to um how complicated it is to design the sound of a film where you have such a large segment where it's it's mostly silent like and not an actual silent film you know there's a big difference there and and yeah i think that the way that that's constructed it um i feel like it was homaged a little bit in that opening scene in the invisible man earlier this year um in the very beginning when she's trying to get away because it's like every little sound is just so amplified and it just starts your heart and i feel like that's that's how it plays out in her fifi too it's just like (laughs) yeah it's it's that awareness of noise which we we you rarely get in film particularly contemporary film uh Mm. because you know and and you got it a little bit also in, in a movie like um a quiet place yeah that that it's the same kind of thing like you become hyper aware of the noise you know the rustling of leaves or the you know footsteps on a floor or something like that because you you know what the stakes are um and it it's, takes a lot of uh it's it's something that only film can do mm-hmm. and it takes a lot of of talent in order to be able to craft a scene like that yeah well and and, and it takes a lot of um willingness to be reserved i think in in some of it too because i think part of what we usually see in modern film is even if there's a scene where nobody's talking and there's you know they're trying to quietly pull something off there's score underneath it and so it's not it's not a completely silent sequence because there's still something going on and then like the if you know that you need to be a little bit more, you know, like there's suspense or whatever, the music will change. So that's the clue. And pulling all of that out and just letting the sequence play as it's, you know, as if you were in that room with those characters, it really does just make it that much more um, of an ex- of a full experience. Of, and the, it really ratchets up the suspense. Yeah. Really does. So, what about you? What's another one of this period? Oh, man, um, what was one I was gonna mention? Uh, the samurai. I never say that right. Yeah, the samurai. It's just like the samurai. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, man, I. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but um, I remember the first time I watched it, which was probably way later in life than I should have seen it for the first time and i was just like holy crap this movie is amazing why didn't anybody tell me <laughs> it's so good <laughs> um yeah so it's it's alain delon um or delon uh we should talk about him in just a minute but um because <laughs> i feel like every french noir film has him in it but <laughs> but yeah it, he's this hitman and um yeah it's um, it's a very uh it's a very stylized film mm-hmm. if, if i remember correctly because it's like yeah. it's from bas- the 60s and yeah yeah and and it's basically it's basically about um 
about him essentially establishing an alibi that then gets broken down and um and so like he he creates these really intense these really complicated alibis that will stop him from obviously getting arrested and then it doesn't work (laughs) (laughs) and uh but if i remember correctly there isn't that much of a plot it's just very yeah it's basically it's him just trying to establish an alibi right and then yeah but his out al- yeah well i mean you just said that yeah but it's like he says he was in one place and then people are like no that's not what happened and i totally saw him over here yeah uh it's one that has a lot of of interesting um uh, not side characters but just a lot of interesting people that pop in and out along yeah. the way it's it's very much a cat and mouse game between the delon character and um and the it's the police inspector superintendent who is sort of no it's one of those stories where he knows that he did it right he and then delon knows that he knows that he did it (laughs) but it's more like okay but can you prove it you know can you actually break this down to the point where you can even arrest me and there's Mm -hmm. that there's almost this this respect between the two of them that they're like we're sort of evenly matched and that this is a fight between um are you going to be able to prove that I'm that I did it? And are you going to be able to escape me? Like it's that kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's that there's, there's just this, it really plays, I think with the mood a lot really well. And, and just this, um, this idea of like, it, it reminded me, uh, I can't think. But yeah, it, it's another one that leads up to this ending that's just like, oh man, it's so good. And yeah. um, you kind of, it's again, we know that it's coming. Yeah. We know how it's going. You know, we might not know exactly what's going to happen, but we know that it's not going to be know great. what's <laughs> happening. But yeah, how it's going to happen is is the yeah. big mystery. And, and where everyone's going to end up at the end is not clear, but it's done so well. And um and Alandalon is just so good. Um, like I, I love watching him, especially when he plays these not good guys. <laughs> like when he's not the hero, but he's yeah. the main character. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, um, just just someone that I wanted to mention really quickly, uh, a director, and and I don't have a specific film in mind of his, but I think all of his films are really great. Is Jean Pierre Melville? Mm who directed and not all of his films are, are would be considered noir in any sense but he directed sort of a series of films that are are very uh they're they're like mid to late 60s and into the 70s and uh so i think that one of the earliest ones that he did was um in, in this category would be le Doulos, uh the deuxième souffle um the samurai which is the did, um le cercle rouge yeah, which is the like 1970, and he also yeah. directed The Samurai. Okay. Yeah. Um, so and and these films, one of the reasons why I'm saying like I don't I don't have a specific film in mind is because they're in many ways they're very minimalist. There's not a lot that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it might be like a heist or we're gonna pull off a job or we're gonna kill someone or anything like that, but he creates these characters that are so fascinating to watch. Mm-hmm. And the stories themselves, even though they're simple, are very meticulously constructed. 
and they're all pushing towards this final ending, which is a very fatalistic ending. Right. But they're so well made and so fascinating. And and he does again, you know, we're talking about um, someone like Louis Mal who's able to get you to root for characters that you know are doomed. Mm-hmm. Um, and Melville kind of takes that even further in that you're you're constantly like, I know that this is not going to end well, and and yet I really. I and and they're not good people like so I almost don't want it to end well but I also want it to because I'm so invested in them yeah um because he he spends so much time in crafting his characters and in allowing his characters to be really intriguing and important to the audience uh and he's just a fantastic filmmaker I don't think he as a French director from this period gets enough credit um for the kinds of films that he made well and I think that that's why a little bit of why it's hard for me to remember specific details like like the red circle i've seen that i don't remember specifically i remember like a guy jumping through a train window you know stuff like that but it's like i don't remember a lot of the specific details of the films but i remember how they made me feel and i remember how much i like watching them and it's it's interesting that that's the case but there's just some directors that are like that for me yeah well in a lot of these films that we're talking about and this is a particular feature of, of, of noir films generally but particularly the french ones is that they're very stylized mm-hmm. it's very much about the look yeah you know so uh, the way that the apartments are constructed the way that the people dress the way that they move the cars that they drive everything is really really meticulous and the best ones really play with that and make it interesting and the, and the worst ones I think it's just nothing but aesthetics and, and there's nothing <laughs> underneath it right um but it, it is interesting that you've got these stories about very disordered lives in a lot of ways that were lives that we would consider to be disordered but the films themselves are very much in tune with the aesthetics of their surroundings and these and the way that the characters move through their surroundings mm-hmm it's yeah. it's very much the I think the Raymond Chandler quote um, and I forget what it actually might be from essay originally but um, he said uh, down these mean streets a man must walk who's not himself mean and that and that becomes one of the basis of uh, Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets but it's <laughs> it's that idea of like this figure of the you know the, the trench coat and the fedora etc um moving through this landscape that is dark and light and very very precisely built very precisely constructed uh and i yeah i just always find it fascinating yeah well let's talk just really quickly just kind of to to close things out but let's talk a little bit about some of the actors that we see over and over again and that we associate with this uh this time period like like a lendalon <laughs> like Delon, who's just so beautiful that you want to die <laughs> oh yes oh my gosh so yeah. he comes on screen sometimes so i'm like that's not normal no one should look like that <laughs> yeah yeah it's true and even like as an older man just like man what a beautiful like he aged very well yes too he does. so yeah <laughs> um who are some others um uh Jean-Paul Belmondo often Mm -hmm. gets like and he's kind of the other side of Delon where he's sort of you look at him and he's like oh you're kind of funny looking but he's also just very cool yeah and and he's sort of like yeah you're awesome like I want to hang out with you (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh man, I bet he had some stories. I'm certain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of some. There's Jean Moreau. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Elevator to the Gallows, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 most most not all of Louis Malle's films. Yeah um there's i mean catherine deneuve pops up in particularly in the later films in like the 60s and 70s oh, she's so great she's so good her. uh what's her name simone signore oh yeah i love her uh yeah. she was in uh, diabolique yes yeah so mm-hmm. the, those are the ones that just come to mind in terms of the kind the it's it's interesting again to think about these women because they're not the classic femme fatales yeah in a lot of ways like they're not veronica lake or uh you know lana turner um mm. or anyone like that they like and, and i mean and by that i mean yes they are different people but they look different they're different they have a different look to them um yeah there there's a tendency in some of them they are not as um uh, glamorous isn't well maybe glamorous is the right word they're not glamorized i think yeah they look they're, they're kind of like the men they look more like real people you know right, versus yeah. versus hollywood stars right uh-huh. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um and well and i was reading something i need to try to find the article but i was reading something where it was talking about um women's places in a lot of of the french noir and especially later and how it was like they kind of became the uh they were women or the female characters were kind of used as a symbol of the shame i guess of Mm. the french being occupied during the war and stuff like that and so these these female characters are um they tend to not be if if they are um uh if they are the one that's like plotting like they're conspiring with someone to kill their husband or whatever it's it's always in service to a man in some way um mm-hmm. or or like later they become virtually non-existent in the film too like yeah they don't really and they're not as involved in the plot it's, it's kind of interesting yeah, particularly in, in a lot of later films, they are often just like the girlfriend of the killer or yeah. the gangster or something. And they're not, they don't drive the narrative in the same way as they do in some of the earlier films in something like Elevator to the Gallows or um, or in many of the noirs that we talk about in from the Hollywood period. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, and, and again, you know, you always have to say, yes, there are definitely gangster films in, in this period. There are gangster noirs that don't really involve women in, to a great deal, sure. to a great extent. But a lot of the time, one of the main points of contention is the femme fatale. She's the one who's driving the narrative in some mm-hmm. way. Yeah, well, and if you look at American films versus versus the French in this time period, the femme fatale in the, in the more American stories, she is oftentimes using men to accomplish her own goals. She has her own needs, wants, desires. Whereas for the the female french characters it there's more of a tendency that they're acting in service to a man in some way not necessarily for themselves yeah that's true so yeah 
All right. Anything else you wanted to mention? There are a ton of these, by the way, on the Criterion channel right now. Yes, so. there, there's there's so many. Like I was even just scrolling through them yesterday. I was just like, oh, I forgot about that one and that one and that one and that one. It's like there's so like you can watch most of the big ones, like most mm-hmm. of the, the Melville and the Mall and um, and the Godard films that we've talked about. But, you know, also smaller ones like the the films of Julien uh, de Vivier, who made some really interesting movies, uh, both before the war and uh, and after it. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, and I think and also Rafifi. So you can decide whether or not you think it's boring. Oh, my gosh, it's so good. It is not boring. <laughs> it's not boring. If you think it's boring, tweet us and we will mock you. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, I think that's going to finish things up for this week. What do you think? I think so. Cool. What do you have coming up this next week? Do I have anything coming up this next week? (laughs) Um, Yes, finally get to watch The Crown. I'm looking forward to that. The next season. The next (laughs) season. I hate the fact that all of these people are saying like, oh, it's so good. I'm just like, oh, I really want to watch it. It's going to come out until fucking Sunday. Fuck you. (laughs) Okay, well, to be fair, well, not to be fair. um, If it makes you feel any better, they only sent me a couple of the episodes. So I have only seen like the first four. So I'm going to be in it with you until Sunday. So, Mm. But oh my gosh, (laughs) Jillian Anderson, man. Whew. She's gonna yeah. win an Emmy. I'm so excited for it. I I am looking forward to that because it sounds like it's a great performance. Yeah, yeah. It was funny because someone told me the other day that she's dating Peter Morgan, and I was just like, "What?" And I was just like, "You know, under some circumstances, I would assume, oh, okay, that's how she got the part." It was just like, "Oh, hey, honey, will you just do this?" But she's so good in it. Like, I think she would have gotten it anyway, no matter what. <laughs> she. I mean, okay, yeah, she is an established actress. <laughs> yeah. Like, but she's also like I wouldn't have assumed that she would be a good Margaret Thatcher that's such a specific person and I wouldn't have assumed that she could pull it off as well like as convincingly as she did it's like Meryl who because Meryl Shroop won an Oscar for that character yeah and I, I will I yeah. will be interested to see her yeah I'm excited um what do I have coming up this week I think I'm finally gonna see Mank um it's so weird to say finally for a movie that doesn't even come out for like another couple weeks but whatever (laughs) um but yeah people have a lot of feelings about that and i'm ready to disagree (laughs) (laughs) so yeah cool well we would like to thank everyone for joining us once again this week and um Go watch some of the films we've talked about because they're great. And watch some other noirs because next week, I think, we're going to talk about Bogey. Are we doing it next week? Yes. Yes, we're going to talk about Bogart, who is the quintessential noir anti-hero, hero. I don't know how we want to define him. Person. <laughs> he's just Bogey. I mean, yeah, he's Bogey. Yeah. <laughs> he's Bogey. So, and we so, definitely need yeah. to talk about him oh yes we do so get yourself prepared watch some movies this week so um and also be sure to vote in our poll that we have going on on twitter right now um for our bonus episode that we're going to do this month which will be a an analysis of a um noir film so you want to weigh in on what we're going to talk about 
go on Twitter, which is at Citizen Dame Pod. You can also find us on Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod. Um, if you would like to email us, we do take emails, uh, citizendamepod at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our website, citizendamepod.com. I promise there are some reviews coming up. I promise they're coming. <laughs> I've been really, really bad about that. It's, life has been busy, so I'm working on it. Um, we would like to thank our patrons for supporting the show and um, especially shout out to Heather, Adriana, Michael, James, Katie, Cariata, Mason, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Nicole, Robert, Sharon, Steve, Tao, and Will. And if you would like to be one of their number, you can join us at patreon.com slash citizen dame. Um, you do get early access to bonus episodes or to all the episodes. You get the full bonus episodes and also a few other things that we're working on right now. So in the next couple of weeks, um, our Patreon is going to be much more cleaned up and sorted out and um, fun. I'm excited for what we're doing. So um, all will be revealed soon. You can also uh, kick us a couple dollars if you feel like it at co-fi.com slash citizen name. And if you want t-shirts, masks, stuff like that, uh, you can find our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen name pod. And um, there's also, you can reach out to us individually. Lauren, where are you? I am on Twitter and Instagram at LH Business. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. So thank you so much for listening once again. We're always happy to have you here and we'll catch you next time. Bye. What do you feel about the I, You know, I have my own theory about it that you know he was behind the door just so you know that's not a question he was there because we were supposed to meet and he changed the time which was supposed to be 11 30. he changed to 9 30. <laughs> what i thought was that i was surprised i didn't think it would happen but then because what he wrote on the door was so deeply moving for me because it was related to Jacques Demy and whatever touches Jacques Demy puts me to very, very deep sorrow and strong feeling. So, because he connected my visit with his friendship to Jacques Demy and to us, I was shocked. And then when we went to the lake, I tried to understand and what I thought is that we had spent good time together with Anna Karina, you know, Jean-Luc, Jacques Demy and me, we spent beautiful time and it's in the past. So I thought, I don't forget, you know, we had a good time, but then life has separated us. And for some reason, maybe it was right not to open the door because what we would say, hello, how are you? And doesn't make sense because we, we met like every five years. And when we met last time, he had done the film Socialism in which he had borrowed a sequence of uh, my Beaches of Agnes. He borrowed the sequence, put it in socialism. So it was okay, you know. We, we have good relationship, but don't, don't we, we don't see each other. So I say, why, why to see us again? And I think you were smart again on the, on the, near the lake, because he's the one who said, he's building the screenplay anyway. He added a page to the screenplay. So I was just feeling what I was feeling 
and we kept it for the end of the film because after all these easy people opening their doors, <laughs> being very open, very nice, we, we got it in the face. <laughs> I say, well, we should learn that. No, not, not everybody is lovely, and, and, and I thought, who in his own or in her life has never felt a closed door? <laughs>